Counting down in five, four, three, two, and one. Mr. Mark Ashmore, welcome to Cam Talks. Hi, I've, I, this is like a dream come true. I'm, I'm a fan. I've watched them on Instagram, and uh, and here I am in my little box in, oh. in, in, in Cam Talk world. <laughs> I have, I have a fan. I love it. Thank you so much, Mark, for for coming on the show. Obviously, look, I mean, yeah, I mean, as much as you know, you you are a fan of my work. I am a huge fan of you, your work, everything you've ever done as a, an entrepreneur has only motivated me to go further. So Mark, give my audience a little bit of a rundown uh, of, of who you are and, and how we met. Okay, so I mean, how we met was probably seven or eight years ago when you were a, a student, first or second year student at FutureWorks, and you had this kind of go get in spirit, which I guess as an entrepreneur, as a fellow entrepreneur, you can you can kind of pick up on that thing. And so we got chatting and I followed some of your stuff and I was interested and we sort of always collided in the corridor and, and chatted. <laughs> it was you know. always the corridor, right? <laughs> yeah, which you can't do now, which is rubbish in this yeah. lockdown world. So that's how we met. We met because we were aware of each other and we collided in the corridor and we both took time out, 10 minutes to chat while people are coming through with the deadlines and their books and we, and you're like, oh, and you kept saying, I know you're really busy, but and then you carried on talking. I'm like, I'm calm, I'm not, I'm cool. Just just keep going. This is cool. I'm I'm never I'm never one of these people to say I'm I'm always busy. I think that's shit when people yeah. say that. But it it was that that time that you gave me that that made me feel that that my ideas were validated, you know, particularly when talking to I mean, even the lecturers at FutureWorks, I, I love them, but but they're lecturers, they have to keep the students on track. And it was actually because we were editing um, one of your feature films. We were doing it as part of our course. And I remember you coming in to kind of give us a little bit more information about that. And as much as I was like, yeah, great. I love the curriculum. I love like, editing this trailer. What I was more interested in is just getting five minutes with you. Just as, as, as at any time, I was just like, Mark, can I just speak to you? I've got a really good idea. And you're like, yeah, go for it, mate. And then, you know, other people come up to you like, Mark, you know when you made that film? I'm like, shut up. It's not about that film. Like, it's about the future, you know. So which kind of brings us on to, uh, to future artists. Because, uh, you know, this is a company that you've run for, what, nearly a decade now? Oh, my God, don't say that. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's, it's 11 years in May that's just gone but we were no way celebrating it so yeah it is 11 years 11 years incredible and tell me what what was the sort of aim of future artists dead what simple is the aim? aim yeah there was a dead simple aim when we started which was our first event was just like a networking event and um and me and um my business partner at the time Jenny we set up uh through Twitter because Twitter was quite new it was 2009 so Facebook was about 2007, YouTube's 2005, Twitter's about 2007-ish. And with all this new technology was connecting people up. And so we thought, well, if we could get a load of creatives together that always wanted to make feature films and somehow connect with our audience using this new technology, you know, could we, could we do stuff like, I guess what Netflix is now is probably what we had in mind. Um, and so we set up just a networking event and the tagline was, not part of Media City yet. And so Media City was just being built in, in, in Salford and it wasn't open yet. And we were like, well, are we gonna be part of Media City or can we build our own Media City? Like, what's that conversation? Because as you know, the industry is very, there's huge walls around it and how, how do you get in? So not part of Media City yet. And that was the conversation we were gonna have on a day and Saturday. 
as part of the Manchester International Festival. So we got a free space and some publicity uh, from that. Um, and so that's how it began. And then it just sort of morphed and, and has changed and has adapted to its surroundings. It is a, in its essence, it's always difficult to explain to this, this what it is, but in its essence, it's an arts collective. It's me leading it and being part of stuff. And it is basically lots of creatives, lots of people from theater and film and now technology and arts and performers and poets and musicians. And we come together and we solve problems and we solve problems for clients now. So we solve problems for shopping centers because they're like, how do we bring people in? And we're like, well, mm. try this. Um, we solve problems for um, in documentaries, like stories we want to tell. Um, we fund people now if we like the work and we want to support them. So like Clementine Bog Hargroves, who's doing Skank, the theatre play that we're funding at the moment. Um, so no arts council needed, we can fund it. Um, but 10 years ago, it wasn't like that. We didn't know what we were doing. And the company has gone bust like twice, mm -hmm. almost bust. You know, we've managed to salvage it, but on life support. And now we're in lockdown COVID-19 and the company is actually kind of thriving in a weird way because of the way that we've built it and the infrastructure so we're used to digital and virtual working and and, and stuff like that and we I wouldn't say we invented the term but we've been doing it for 10 years mm -hmm. uh, and, and and we find ourselves doing stuff like this which is very natural and um, we're very open on social media so yeah uh, in a nutshell Future Artists is an arts collective We've been doing it for 10 years. We sometimes don't know what we're doing, but then our tagline is, without deviation from the norm, progress is not possible. So how are you going to progress if you know the answer already? you just got to go and find out. This is really, really interesting, Mark, because you know I haven't you know, been in the world of business now for, for a number of years. I'm always shocked to see technically um, qualified people demanding creative. And, and knowing that they need creatives, they need creativity, they need creative people, they need a social media manager, they, they think they need all this shit that comes from the creative world, and yet they're not willing to be honest with themselves, they're not willing to fail, they're not willing to experiment. And so when I first met you and you were like, oh yeah, like fucking, we're gonna, we're gonna make whatever we wanna make. You, know, you wanna start a coffee shop? We'll start a coffee shop. You're gonna, you wanna fund this person's art? And I kept thinking, I was like, is this a good, business like is it a good business to want to encourage people to do creative endeavors and, and in my head I thought yeah of course it is it's the only thing worthwhile doing you know and and so it's interesting that now you've kind of been able to monetize it and and work with brands and work with with people to solve their problems using creativity but it seems like you'll never forget your roots you know with the experimentation and the deviation from the norm well what's what's interesting as you were saying that and I was thinking how can I a relevant point back we were probably um saying things that the, the, there wasn't a tag for what we were doing so people you couldn't say we're this and i think what we were were very early social media influencers in a, in a in a way so there's a whole marketplace now there's loads of them every different niche is covered by some sort of influencer there's somebody on doing knitting on youtube you know <laughs> and, and they've got huge businesses there we've both read that book so we know that that, that reference there um, um and then there's somebody doing clothing and um and, ma and there's, everybody's doing makeup um but we were out there saying like you know influencers for stories so if there was a documentary that we were passionate about so um uh, Restrepo, which was a, a dog wolf film, which was about um, soldiers in, in Afghanistan. And we 
um, one of their first people to do their pop-up cinema, which basically Dogwolf gave us the rights. We went to pop some pop-up spaces in Salford, and this was like eight years ago. And we went to an audience who we thought would like the film and invited them to a non-cinema space to watch a documentary about soldiers in Afghanistan that went on to win Oscars and things like that. But, but not only did Dogwolf give us the opportunity to, to do that, which was radical in itself, it was a new form of cinema, distrib cinema distribution, but we then connected with audiences and influenced them to come to a space on a rainy, cold Tuesday, and we sold out uh, Islington Mill um, for a pop-up cinema with a, a projector and a laptop and a screen with a, uh, you know, a, a, a made out of a bedsheet. And that was like, this could be the future of this model. But we were influencing the sphere and being part of a social media conversation, which is all that's happening now. Community managers, as you mentioned, influencers, even this this this. A vlog podcast is part of that uh, infrastructure but we were trying to build all that and convince people that it existed while people were going we don't know what you're talking about mm -hmm. but the, I think what was interesting is the fact that I don't think uh, you know your community would be as strong or as engaged if you weren't based up north uh, it seems like Manchester was was your kind of your hub and for a very long time you couldn't really talk to anyone in the creative industry who didn't know Mark Ashmore or future artists so I, I don't know whether you feel like like Manchester as as a hub kind of gave you that opportunity more so than anywhere else. I think what Manchester gave us and still gives us, and I'm even though I'm not living in Manchester at the moment, I always say I'm from Manchester. I, I I've been there 15 years, and I actually I'm I'll be going back. I'm moving out shortly, and I'll be going back to Manchester. Um, Manchester allows you to fail and it doesn't mind it almost expects you to fail so that it can pick it pick you back up again and if you pick yourself back up again in manchester people want to support you even more and as i said in in the opening there we've probably failed spectacularly twice and because we are on social media because i'm a bit of a public face of this entire thing when i fail i'm failing in public and i'm failing to the people of manchester and the wider we go, the, the more people know. And that's kind of horrible in a way, because you do get people, you know who your friends are when you fail. Yes. <laughs> you, get, you, get, you get stabbed in the back and you know you, you owe people money and you, you're paying it off. And I've paid everybody off that I've ever owned, but you've, I failed uh, financially uh, is only the way that I failed. Because creatively you learn new stuff and things like that. But, yeah, when you're in a Manchester's quite small, and so yeah, everybody gets to know each other, and it will support the people that are out there doing stuff, which is why we're supporting people in Manchester now. We're in a position where we can do it, so we can give back. Um, but for I don't know seven years, we were flailing all over the place trying to figure out who we were, what we were doing. People were taking risks with us. People were like helping us, and that's because Manchester's got that. That nucleus and it's small mm. enough to allow that. I think it almost feels like the underdog, you know, in, in the UK, yeah. you know, and I think because of that, it means that we are, well, I, I say we, you know, I, I even consider myself from Manchester, you know, I went there 2010, I was there for eight years and I've never felt so, um, so much of a community. And I think that the, the obviously the, the Manchester arena bombings, when that happened, uh, and you know, suddenly uh, bumblebees. That was, are... that was next to my flat as well. Like my flat was one away from it, so the police. My my flat was all police cordoned off. Wow. So you were you were there at the time? 
I was in Edinburgh, so I, I'm not. I wasn't there, but yeah. I came back on the day after it happened, and my train was due back, and it was it was. I was upset. I was shaken because I was mm. uh, for the people of Manchester, and you see the outpouring and the "Don't Look Back in Anger" song and everything there, and that's happening two streets away, and then the bombing was a street away, and you just yeah, the, the real sense of loss in that city at that time. Oh. Um, it's not made up. It's it's a genuine emotional thing, and that's, hey, that it gives me the goosebumps now, man. Like every every time I think about the reaction, uh, I just think what a, a Manchester way of of coming back, and and you know, the, just the city is just it brings me so much joy and happiness. But look, here's the here's the problem with the word failure, Mark, is it doesn't sound sexy, um, you know. And so let's let's try and reimagine it um, because. You know, I, I think that one of your best, um, one of your best endeavors, and, and I say one of your best, one of the, the most useful things that you ever did for me was starting Honest Coffee. Uh, obviously, the coffee shop that was uh, right around the corner from FutureWorks, the film school I went to. And me and my, uh, my classmates, um, you know, when we're working on our own crazy passion projects, we'd go and sit in Honest Coffee. And everything about that place inspired us to, to try something different. Even the business model of Honest Coffee was about giving profits away. And again, like, you know, as someone who thinks he sort of new business, I used to sit there scratching my head. Uh, but also realizing that, that the value of this place was in what it makes me feel. Uh, and the reason why it was different to Costa or any other small cafe shop was because I knew your story and I knew why you were doing it. And I knew that this business model if it would have worked, would have actually been good for the community. So can you tell us a little bit more about the business model of Honest Coffee and why you decided to go down that route? Yeah, so the first initial thing was that um, to use a creative space in Manchester was becoming more and more expensive because it was becoming gentrified. And, and I recognised that. And, um, and I was like, well, how do we solve that problem as a, as a creative community? Um, the second bit was that there was stories at the time that Starbucks would pay, weren't paying any tax uh, or very little tax. And there was a huge thing with a lot of, and it still happens now, but the corporations doing massive tax avoidance and the government, remember we was in an age of austerity. And so this was around 2020, sorry, yeah, 20, when did we do that project? 2015 or something like that. And so we were five years into austerity and it was, there was cuts everywhere. You know, councils being cut, Shaw Start Centres being cut and, and, and Starbucks are like cutting everything. And I was like, well, if we could have a creative space that was free for creatives to use and they could put events on and they could do, co-working was becoming a thing. I think WeWork was just about to happen. So it was around that time. So it was a cusp of this co-working thing happening. Like we could do some co-working, we would make it free, so there isn't a monthly like fee to pay, and it's paid for by the coffee shop. And so obviously freelancers already use coffee shops to do their emailing and have meetings and stuff. And I was just like, well, okay, well I don't want to profit from that. If we take the money that's made and it, and it pays everyone that's in the shop, and then the surplus, we then can create these creative grants, and then everyone in the shop that uses the shop can apply for the creative grants. So it's simple, it becomes a circular um, economy. Although it didn't work. <laughs> and the reason that it didn't work in hindsight, and bearing in mind this cost me about £40,000 in an experiment out of my own pocket, I had to then come up with another idea to pay for the idea that went wrong. <laughs> Luckily, history of video games helped pay for the mistakes of 
um, of honest coffee. I was, I, I was innovative enough to come up with something. But it didn't work because I didn't use zero hour contracts. Now they're there for a reason is that when you've got all your staff on 40 hours, they, and they're on, and they're on above living wage because I was doing everything ethically good. <laughs> There's no wiggle room when it goes wrong. So when it was going wrong and the reason it went wrong is because there was, um, there was a massive car park next to us that held 500 cars. So people would park up and walk into Manchester and get coffee or food from us. That closed, and the reason it closed is because they're going to build some apartments on it. Mm. So, and then there was an art studio and some other bits and bobs around that all closed and were turned into flats. And they had loads of workmen on stuff on there. And of course, when workmen are around, they don't want a artisan coffee and they don't want a avocado on toast. They want a full English breakfast and a mug of tea for the cheapest price that you can give them. And we weren't geared up for that. And neither was the footfall in the area uh, there to enable us to keep paying uh, 40 hour a week, four members of staff, 10 pounds an hour. It was too much. And so mm. literally, and I didn't have the, because it was coming up to Christmas, I didn't want to be Scrooge and sack all the, or make the staff redundant. Um, and so I was three months into a, it literally you saw the numbers going like that and like nothing. And it was literally, have to find the wages, found them, pay them out, found them, pay them out, have no money. What do we do? Sorry, guys, we've got no jobs. And it's like, oh, Mark, we hate you. It's Christmas. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but then uh, yeah, on, on top of that, there's also like sort of freak accidents. I, I think you had a flood uh, one Oh, yeah, we got, we got broke into once. Oh. We, had, we had two floods because of um, the basement was below some water line. No, first one was... Uh, a pipe flooded, so the United Utilities fresh water went in. Oh. So we got we got a claim, you know, we uh, claimed for everything in the basement, everything ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and the second one was rainwater because it naturally floods because of, of where it is, and um, yeah, that was happening around the time of it going south. So um, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, I, when, it I, the, when it flooded the second time, it was the massive floods that happened in in Boxing Day when like Todmorden, where I lived, my house got flooded. So I lost, I had to move out of house. It's like a refugee. The I same time, saying, the coffee shop also got flooded at the same time. So that was difficult. <laughs> but here's the thing, Mark. It's it, 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 it's a great idea, um, and and so obviously you know it didn't work because of the, the the sort of reasons you you've given. But do you think it ever could work that um, that you could create a social, uh, you know, I mean, what I'd call a social enterprise um, for the creative community? Yeah. So from those experiences, I'm I'm not been jaded enough to not give up on the idea. I mean, I'm looking at taking the idea and applying it to um to creating cycle hubs across manchester because Ooh. we need secure places to put our bikes and communities cycling community is cool i'm part of the cycling community and um and it's a cool cool sort of gang to hang out with and um and, and a lot of cool business people and creatives and stuff in there as well so it's good for networking and, and growing the business the reason that we failed is because i was naive of how the world works. I thought that everybody was gonna give us the opportunity to, I thought everyone was always gonna to come to the shop because they believed in what I was trying to do. Now, you, you went 
however many times you went, but we really needed you, Cameron, and a hundred people like you to come every single day. Mm -hmm. um, even in our down periods, and even if there was a lockdown like COVID-19, we would still need you to turn up. Mm -hmm. um, we had that at the start because we did it on Kickstarter. So we had we had funding from the, the fan base that future artists have been building up for whatever, six years before that. So we got a little bit, but that was good for two weeks. And then we we're into the world of, you know, the, the bricky wants a, a, a fried breakfast. And we couldn't supply that because we didn't do it. And they would walk out and I would sit there and I would see customers walking in and walking out. And I'd ask them why. And they were like, well, you're not doing everything's too fancy or it's a pound more than Tesco's up the road for a sandwich. And I was like, oh, we need these because I'm paying for the staff and i am got all this and all these overheads and stuff. So it was naivety that everyone's going to support the idea. They're not. You see this on Brexit. 50% want it, 50% don't. Coffee shop, 50% just want something to eat. 50% are like, we love the idea, Mark, we'll support you, all that sort of thing. So, um, and we just didn't have the footfall. I, I went for the area that I could afford with the money that I had. Never do that. Save up some more to get the space that will work for your business. Right. I've been looking for a space for a year and I had Kickstarter backers and I was just worried about them. I was mm -hmm. like worried about what they were saying, like what they were emailing me saying, you're, you're taking our money. And I was like, I'm looking for, <laughs> looking for a, you gave me five grand. <laughs> like, yeah. I've got to build this thing out of five grand, which is naivety again that I didn't have the right capital to back my idea. So I didn't back my idea with enough capital. It was in the wrong place. I, um, uh, my ethics were too high. Um, and I gave myself no wiggle room when it came to it, it collapsing. And, and you know what the biggest mistake I made, Cam, before we probably move on to another subject? and I don't think anybody knows this, is that I thought I was being clever by signing a 10-year lease. And I didn't get it checked out by a, a property um, lawyer. And so the, the, the massive failure on this part, which could have completely wiped me out, was that the landlord had me in a 10-year bind and I had no exit clauses within my contract. You have to wow. put those in. <laughs> So a lawyer would put them in for me. So the contract had no way of me getting out of it. And so I would plead to them and say, I don't want to give you the £4,000 a month for this, this shop. I have nothing in it. So there's no mark you need to pay. So for a year after the coffee shop closed down, I had to find £4,000 a month to, to, to pay for it. So I brought other operators in. I created the history of video games. I did whatever I could to create stuff in that space to basically pay off money to the landlord. Um, the landlord eventually let me out of the contract after sending me a bill for £140,000, which was, you know, the eight years left on the contract. And he said, look, this is what you owe, but we'll put it on the market. And if we get somebody to take the shop, then we'll be released from your contract. Luckily, six weeks later from this letter, £140,000 letter, um, they found somebody and there's somebody in there now doing cosmetic surgery or something, you know, where they get lit. Mark, um, I would have loved to see your face when you opened that letter. Oh, it was an email and I was in an art gallery in Edinburgh and I was looking at some fancy art or, you know, some weird stuff that was up there. And I just opened this and I'm like, well, I haven't got £140,000. So I, <laughs> I don't know if I carried on my day, but it, it, it plays on your mind, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's incredible though, because obviously, you know, adapt and overcome, you know, deviation from the norm is, is what you do. So you've got a space, uh, you know, and I, I, I think I do feel kind of bad now because I could have always brought a few more friends with me to that space. However, it was just so useful for us as film students to just kind of be there. But moving on, you know, you have to sort of pay four grand a month. I mean, that's ridiculous that that was, that was even in your, your head every day when you went to bed, is that four grand. Yeah. Uh, the history of video <laughs> games was was mad, mate. I, I've never walked into a place and had, you know, all of my old games consoles from, you know, the Nintendo Wii down to, you know, the N64 and then obviously the, the PS4 and all that. You just, it was, you just created a gaming space uh, with both, you know, new and old games. Tell me a little bit more about the history of games or the history of gaming, sorry. Uh, so yeah, the history of video games event video started games. out as a back of the beer my idea that I was so I had the Great Northern Warehouse um, while we had the coffee shop. So I was able to service four grand a month because I had a very lucrative contract um, doing the marketing and events for a very big space in the middle of Manchester. Um, and I was on a good retainer. So I didn't get any wages. The wages went straight to the coffee shop. But, and I had a team to pay and stuff. So I managed to service it that way. And we had to come up with ideas to go into this big Great Northern Warehouse space in Manchester. And one of the ideas I came up with was um, uh, Retro Arcade. Um, and this, was, this idea was about five years ago. And so I said to Carla, who was working with us at the time, I said, go find where we can get um, retro arcade machines from, because I think I've got an idea and I want to figure it out. She came back and she said, we can hire them from these places and things like that. And then I just sort of forgot about the idea because we had lots of other things going on, but it was an idea that we had. Then when the coffee shop went south, um, I needed an idea and I remembered that one and I was like, well, nostalgia is pretty cool and I like video games and they like stories and I'm, in, I'm into video game culture. I'm like, if you do it right, you've actually got a storytelling world and you've got all these amazing characters like Sonic and Mario and you've got Outrun and Afterburner and you've got a real rich history of technology and innovation and video games culture and uh, it's not really catered for on the high street. And I was like, why is that? It's like the video game industry is as big as the music and the film combined, plus then some, it's a massive, massive, massive industry. I'm like, why is no one doing anything in this, in this field? <clears throat> and the reason is, is because I guess they don't understand it. I guess the money men don't understand what this is um, because it comes from games developers and it's a, bit geeky but it's not because mobile gaming everybody plays mobile games on their phones and it, it's for everybody mm -hmm. and so we used the coffee shop which was now empty and I had no coffee <laughs> coffee or food in it and it was just me <laughs> um, and we managed to work with collectors to get the video games and we put them in the space and like you said we had this we used all the space up and we had loads of video games in there and we just said look you pay 10 pounds get three hours and you can play anything you want and and it's for all the family so we aimed it at the family we originally aimed it at kind of like geeks <laughs> like people that collect arcade machines and stuff but then we realized that actually collectors are a really funny they're very close-knit bunch if you're not a collector you're kind of not allowed in the gang and they also didn't want people to really play the machines it was more about looking at the machines and and, and collecting things and so I was like no no we need to aim at families so it's people probably a little bit older than me that have got some kids that are like this is what I had when I was a kid come and play this cool game and you know get off Fortnite and come and play um, 
um, Mario 3 on the, on the NES. And, uh, and that's what started to happen. And then obviously with social media, you get to report that and talk with your community and it builds and builds. So it started from the coffee shop and then it moved to shopping centers where we then began to solve the problem of how you bring families and young people uh, using social media into the shopping center so that the shopping center could then say, you know, go to Subway, go to Primark. Uh, and we built up, um, you know, thousands of people have been to these events. Um, and it's actually our cornerstone of what future artists do or was until COVID-19 came along and now paid for attractions are currently no, no, <laughs> no, no. But, um, and, and that's a real shame, right? Because I mean, just simply bringing people together. I mean, I remember multiple times coming in and just, you know, being amazed by the fact that you've got all these people here sharing the same passion. And I think that's probably what you, you've always stood out to me for is you're very good at bringing together people around subjects they really, really love. So obviously, um, you know, you got into the gaming side of things. You started realizing that this industry was just 10 times bigger than, than what you were kind of uh, brought up to think. Um, I didn't even think the video game industry was that special, um, but obviously it is. Um, you then moved into sort of uh, future technology. So like AR, uh, the VR, AR. I mean, this is stuff that I don't think was really even that big at the time. You know, you were really trying to, to put it in the hands of, of normal people. I think it was the first time I ever tried a VR uh, was, was at, at the, um, what, what, what was the name of that event? The So we called it, so we did the history of video games and that went well. And then we took that to, a, uh, to Edinburgh, to Ocean Terminal and it, and it ran there. And then, so the coffee shop was empty again. And you, there's a recurring <laughs> theme here. Um, and so I could use it as my platform to say what would be the future of video games. And so we, we, I was doing things in very early VR about four years ago with um, the Oculus um, headsets and the HTC Vives and stuff. And the PlayStation 4 had just brought their headset out. But this technology is very expensive. And if they want storytellers and creatives to, um, to get into it and to figure out how to use it, I'll, again, I'm using that cooperative model is to say, well, if a bunch of creatives want to use this kit, um, let's share the kit and let's all learn together on this new thing. Um, and so that's what the future of video games was part of that. And then there was also an immersive arts lab that we ran out of a university. And those two things combined informed me enough that uh, last year I pitched in and I've been given a PhD with a scholarship on immersive arts and VR because of those two things that I learned there mm -hmm. um, at Liverpool John Moores University, where I'm doing it now. Um, we we wanted to learn from the audience. So it was like, well, how are people going to react? Like what, when you put something on your head and, and is there a future in this? So we did a, we did a one month prototype, which you did a vlog for, I think, and, uh, and you came down and visited. Um, and that's how that began because we had a space and we need, needed to experiment with the community. Um, and I wanted a new creative journey. I think I was, I was um, giving the coffee shop back. I knew there was an end to that journey and I wanted to know what I was going to be doing next. And, um, it's storytelling in a digital world. So we're now probably moving into a world of um, the metaverse and having almost all like 60% of our lives online and 40% in the real world was, and COVID sped this up is that actually before it was probably like 40% online and 60% offline. Mm -hmm. So um, I knew that was coming because you could just see the natural play of things really. Um, but now you've got Generation Z, and um, I'm a millennial, uh, or just about a millennial, but Gen Z who's underneath us are literally all consumed by digital culture. 
Um, and so they'll be discovering everything through through the the cloud and, and this digital universe out there using laptops, tablets, phones, VR as their way in. But I think the thing that really interested me when I came and uh, I shot the vlog um, about, you know, the future of, of AR, VR, and, you know, you, you had in the coffee shop uh, the Star Wars game set up, um, and I remember playing that, and uh, I know I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an emotional person, Mark, you know, so like yourself. I only need a few things to go right for me to believe that I am actually a Jedi. Um, <laughs> so that was like a really massive wake up call for me. And obviously I, I filmed it, made the blog about it. And then I went to the, the workshop and what really, really surprised me was the people at the workshop, you know, were, que were quite clearly into gaming uh, and they were quite clearly you know, interested in it, but there wasn't an overwhelming sense of like what we're doing here today is, is like the future. And I'm, I look back at this blog now and I think like, wow, like Mark has always been just a bit before his time, like almost too much before your time. Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm well aware <laughs> of this in a weird way. Not like, I, I actually slow myself down now because I am years, I'm sometimes, if I'm trying to commercialize an idea, I'm two years way ahead. And so I'll go <laughs> bankrupt trying to convince people over two years because I've done this maybe four or five times. So I'm actually keenly aware that I actually, I have ideas right now that will not, come to fruition for five years and I just need to wait <laughs> and work on stuff and uh, do other things in while I'm waiting for things to catch up so no I am I am weirdly aware of um, that sometimes it's all about timing mm -hmm. and sometimes my timing is is way off um, and that's a business lesson is that um, you, you you see that through the history of most technology technological things is the consumer you, you can only run as fast as the consumer can keep up with you Interesting, um, which makes it really tough for entrepreneurs like like yourself who are are trying to to kickstart the, the the sort of next gen. I mean, talking about gens, uh, Lost Generations that was a, a feature film you shot, and may I say, probably again before it's you know before it's time. Tell us um, about the sort of the themes of that feature film because I think that's probably very relevant today. Yeah, I I watched it back a, f a few weeks ago because I was on lockdown, so I was looking through archive stuff and. Yeah, it's very relevant. Um, but that's how I was looking at the future could be. Is that so? The Lost Generation is about is about um, a fictional game show, which is controlled by the government, and it's like everybody watches this game show, and so it's a little bit like Hunger Games. Uh, and our lead character SJ is sort of framed for a crime she didn't commit, but by committing that crime, it's gonna it's gonna help the higher ups and the government to succeed on what they want to do. And, you know, the banks are involved, major corporations are, are being greedy and are involved. And there's these two producers that are sort of the puppets um, controlling everything, but ultimately they are also controlled. And it's about, I guess it's about fake news and the narratives of the time <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. But it was made uh, eight years ago and shot because I wanted to shoot, I, you know, I always wanted to be a film director. I, you know, I'm big, big up to George Lucas and, and Disney and, uh, these innovators that I look up to and the consumer cameras the, the 550Ds and the 5Ds were coming out and they looked quite cinematic you could film on them and I was like well let's just borrow those off people that have got them pay them to you know a day rate to shoot a film and we shot Lost Generation in 11 days but we shot it over like two and a half years on weekends um, and so I constructed the story that it could be done on that duration because we didn't have money available to pay people. So we had to keep waiting or do crowdfunding to, 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 to do it. 
but eventually we did a good good enough job and it was picked up by a distributor um it was released on dvd it was on love film it's on amazon prime now it's been sold multiple times to different distributors i get a royalty check from it which is very very small and the film ultimately cost ten thousand pounds to make using the robert rodriguez film school technique um and i got a loan from nationwide for garden furniture to make the film um <laughs> and ultimately i just need to put my money where my mouth was and, and and obviously you know some credit cards and stuff and um um we made it and it's out there and it's 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 on a disc that nobody can put in anything now because nobody <laughs> uses that but the distributor has sold it onto q media who i think have just gone bust and that's been sold on to somebody else and it sits on amazon prime and on itunes um but the best thing for me is when I, I ordered it myself on Love Film and it got delivered to my house. And I, I took a photograph, I think it's on my Instagram, and we saw it in HMV on the shelves. And, and there's a YouTube video with that. Um, for me, that was a dream, a boyhood dream come true. At 31, I'd made my feature film. I did it my way using techniques that um, Robert Rodriguez and Lucas said to do. They were right. I did it, and it, it got an audience. And uh, ultimately, that went on. It got pirated, got seen a million times on all the streaming sites, and enabled me to do another project called Portal, which um, was because we took the chance and we got to do do that film. So, uh, having it pirated, were were you bothered by that? Because I imagine some filmmakers don't like that, but that was good for you, right? Yeah, because I knew that that was like the audience saying we like it. Because I didn't have a marketing budget, you know, I had like <laughs> like a few thousand people on Twitter and a few thousand people on Facebook, and it's like go buy my film from HMV, and we're like, what's that film, Mark? Oh, it's shot for ten thousand pounds. We're not gonna buy it. Um, and like, it's really good. So an audience, somebody actually brought it. They had to purchase it from somewhere and then go through the trouble of wanting to pirate it. And we found the original website of where it had been hosted and and the artwork they put on. And what we realized is our YouTube video, our YouTube views for our trailer shot up from like 500 to like 8,000 in a period of two weeks. And it's because they put that video on their, um, on that forum and then other people pirate it and put it on other websites and they use this, it's like a kit of instant pirate kit. So we mm. found the source and then we were like, well, it's now on, I think I found it on, I found it on 20 sites at least because you go on them and they've got all these weird pop-ups, so I stopped yeah. looking for a while. But then my mate, who's a, who's a Sparky, one of my best friends, he was like, your film's on the front page of this illegal plug-in that you put in the back of the TV. Um, it's on this carousel, like a Netflix carousel. Like, it's next to big films, and there's your film. And I'm like, well, how many views has it had? And he says it's had 25,000 views, and it's got a, a seven or eight-star rating out of ten. And I'm like, whoa. And so I, I, I messaged him two months later and said, how many views have I got on that illegal Netflix? And he went, well, it's like 120,000 views now and your rating's like seven out of 10. And I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> Sweet. And it's a cult classic. You know, it, it really you, is. I, I, you know, if more press re reported on it because it was never really picked up by the press. You would say it's a cult classic, you know. Um, but nobody I mean, really it, knows. It's, it's tough though because... I think the the issue the issue with it is it it is so real. Like you, you've obviously taken you know the experience that you've had and the understanding of your worldview and said I'm going to tell this story, 
um, and this is the way I see the world. And you're not wrong, Mark. You know, the way that, that you know, corporations and globalists are, are sort of leading the world agenda, agenda is absolutely true. And yet you're not seeing movies about this, you know. So I doubt you'd ever get a studio to, to commission a, a, a movie about the types of themes uh, that Lost Generations was about. And dude, that, that again comes back down to this Manchester sort of feeling of like, I'm going to tell the truth in the, in the way I want to tell it, regardless of whether you think you're going to show it in your cinema or not. And there you go. Technology says, thank you. We'll take that and we'll just put it around the world. Million views yeah. and, you know, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, things only go viral if um, you give the audience the, the freedom to share it and also that they want to share it because they've got to put some work into it. To, even if it's just pressing two buttons to send a share, they've got to make a decision. Mm -hmm. um, and so hopefully the way that we've built future artists up over the past 10 years is to enable people that we want them to make that decision and help them out how to do that. And you've got to have genuine conversations to do that because no one's going to share um, a half-baked idea or something they're not equally passionate about. So hopefully we're connecting mm. with people. There was a lot of really relevant themes, um, particularly around like surveillance. And I think that was probably a time when we were all starting to realize maybe around sort of Edward Snowden days. And we just realized that we were being watched 24 seven. We realized that we were part of someone else's game. And, uh, and I think that's why it had such, uh, you know, such good feedback from people. So moving on now, obviously, I think that was a long time ago. Um, tell me a little bit more about the current projects. So you've got Skank, right? That's, uh, that's uh, happening in Paris Fringe. Yeah. So part of, we've been quite successful with history of video games. We've paid off all the debt. And so we started to get a surplus of capital. So the original idea was always to support artists with grants and to invest in them and to take all our experience, which um, you know, my experience is, is, is 15, 20 years working in theatre and film. And then the, the collective around us have all got different experiences to be able to build, a, a, I guess, a, a product or, or to, go, to go into our community. And so I sort of stumbled across this amazing art, artist called Clementine Hoggroves or Clem. And Clem is, she's got this one woman show, it's called Skank, and it's a comedy drama. Uh, she does everything on stage and it's just a table and a chair, but she brings this world alive and it's won um, loads of critical acclaim. Like the reviews are an amazing, you know, they call her a tour de force. Um, she's really funny, she's witty, she's really warm with it, and she's a really nice person to work with. And so I saw a poster for it and I contacted her and there was a big sort of buzz about Fleabag at the time. And I was like, I, I would love to find a Fleabag-esque piece of work to, or create something. I had a few ideas, but I was like, well, I'm not female. Um, but I could produce with somebody. I could bring all my skills to somebody. And so I found Clem's work and I asked her to come in for a meeting. We met at home in Manchester and had a pizza and a glass of wine. And I said, like, if I was to give suggestions and work with you and actually collaborate with you, would you listen to me or do you just like to do your own thing? She's like, no, I'll be open up for, for chatting and to collaborating. And I didn't know who she was. And so basically we, we, we had a, a courtship, creative courtship for like three months trying to figure out how to work together. And then um, I said, look, we'll take a risk and we'll put on um, Skank in the King's Arms in, in Manchester, which is a small, uh, theatre pub, it holds about 50 people, uh, and we were given a, a slot for like 30 quid a night uh, and some rehearsal space as part of a kind of best of the Manchester fringe because she 
she came like third best in, in this fringe thing in, in, in last year. But it's January, so no one's going to turn up. So the reason they give the slots for this theatre is because nobody's going to turn up. So it's just to get maybe sell a few pints. So, but they didn't realise they were getting future artists involved. And so what we did with Skank um, and to and what we did with Clem was we um, we sold out all of all of our dates in January, and we were only meant to have two dates. And this other theatre company dropped out, and I said. I'll have those two dates, so we've got four dates to run this, because in theatre you needed to, to bed down and to, to find his feet. And I've never worked with Clem, so I wanted more dates to work with. Luckily that we did, because we sold out the entire run, and it was like the 14th of January, you know, when no one's got no money, it's cold and rainy, and it was chucking it down with rain, and people came to see the show. Off the back of that, we managed to get into Vaults Festival, which is like the Edinburgh Festival of London. It's a mm -hmm. huge thing. Um, Lynn Gardner, who's the major arts critic for theatre in The Guardian, she's contacting us and she might be doing an article on us. Um, the Brighton Fringe, we got into that to do four dates. So five, they gave us four and then they gave us five. But obviously that was in May and COVID-19 meant that we couldn't do it. So we've, we've, we're booked on for next year. Um, and then Paris Festival, uh, Paris Fringe Festival got in touch and said, um, do you want to do Paris? But obviously COVID's about, we still want to do our festival because we've got thousands of people that would normally come, but we're going to do an online festival, but we're going to innovate with our online. So we're not just going to film a show. We want to do some different stuff. And I said to Clem, I said, we're building Skank out to be like a story world. So they were like graphic novel, novel elements. There's online, the way we talk online is in character. Um, we've got vi funny videos. There's obviously the show that people that sold out and people come to. Um, and I said, well, what can we put into Paris? What can we innovate with streaming theatre? And what can we create in the story world to do this? And so Clem went away and she created, um, it's called Skank, um, a brand new mess. Because um, we always refer to it as Skank, a, a self-made mess. It's about the character sort of, you know, overcoming obstacles in life. So she's created, I think, a 40 minute hybrid live performance, pre-teleplay created performance, some social media stuff that I'm doing. And this is going to be our performance at the Paris Fringe. So it's very innovative and very future artists and very new. But it's kind of not new to us because all I've done is taken elements from the last 10 years and mm -hmm. placed them around this piece of work. Are you telling placed... me that finally you're at the right time in history, Mark? Well, I had to create a <laughs> COVID-19 lockdown situation for me to be able to show what transmedia is, which is a turn back from back in the day which is now cross-platform which is now whatever they call it now which is now just how it is isn't it so <laughs> incredible and, and of course you know there there's a lot of people a lot of businesses uh, in the world that are struggling to grasp what this digital transformation is and you know I mean there's a lot of people I'm sure you're working with who are, are so thankful to have you and your experiences in their life because yeah I mean I used to feel a little bit um you know a bit of hatred towards the older generation whenever I used to tell them that digital was the way forward and now I just feel a bit sorry for them so um it's good that you know people like you exist and you're able to go to the the creatives and go to the technical people and be like guys look I've I've done this before I've I've seen it in a dream <laughs> <laughs> I know that this is actually going to work and of course the only barriers now is this sort of technology you know is the uh, is the ability you know what's funny I mean like I live in a warehouse in uh, in North London with 20 people who hate 5G. 
I can't wait to get faster oh, into that. I, I can't wait for 5G. I've, I've already, I just brought a, a, camp, a VW camper van, a T5. I've become one of those people. Uh-huh. Um, I can't wait to have my little office in anywhere with 5G connection, which will be faster than my own broadband. And I get to go kayaking on, for lunch and then come back and do whatever digital stuff. If I'm doing lockdown and if this is the new normal, I hate that word, but mm-hmm. this is the new normal, then I'm going to have it on my terms. So I'll be working at my T5 and, uh, and, and, and driving about and, and, and doing really good work, but on my terms, because I don't want to work from home, like as in home, home, there needs to be a separation. So mm-hmm. I need to invent a new separation and that's, um, and that's part of my mix I need for myself, mental health and all that kind of stuff. So. How, how has it been for you in lockdown? Um, you know, what, what's your situation like? So I'll, I'll come up with, I've, I actually, I was thinking about this, this this morning. I would come up with ideas just for something to do and I'd get the whiteboard out and I'd do this. So I've done lockdown on my own um, and I live in a new place because I came to uh, West Kirby to do my PhD in Liverpool. So I moved mm. about nine months ago to a new place and so I don't really know anybody. And so um, I can't go on social distance walks or anything. So everything's been by Zoom or a phone call, or um, I wrote letters to my grandparents because they can't really hear on the phone and stuff. So I'd, you know, letter writing. Um, Horses for courses, right? Yeah, yeah. And they they loved the letters, so it it works for everybody. Um, Yeah, just trying to keep myself busy by doing that. I still had clients, like I'm doing, I'm producing for the BBC. And so I put that on hiatus um, because we couldn't fabricate some of the stuff. It was, it's like theatre and VR that we're doing it for new creatives at the BBC. And so I said to my executive producer, I said, look, instead of just burning through cash trying to solve problems, the smart thing to do is just to stop. Mm-hmm. And we just place it like that and I'll pick it back up in two months' time, which is quite daring when I've never... Um, this is my first producing contract as a, as a new media creative uh, for the BBC and in charge of a production. And I went... <laughs> we've only got this much budget and if we burn through it we haven't got any more so let's just stop and yeah. wait time becomes our friend and everybody trusted me on that and now we're, we're back up in production we've got a virtual studio thing going off and, and the world's coming back alive um incredible so you made you like made that. a decision to hold on a project huh you, you actually made the decision to put a hold on a project instead of diving into it and and just just seeing it happen that's that's comes from experience i think so knowing that time is your friend that you don't need to be running through every single door you don't need to take every opportunity that comes for you because as you know as your career um has got bigger you have 10 opportunities in front of you but really you can only do one of them very well maybe two and so Mm -hmm. you have to figure out what that one's going to lead to if you do it and so you have to figure that one out so that's why i know that getting a t5 and working from a van is fine I know that selling the BBC they need to hold for a little bit is fine. I know that working with Skank, we, we didn't get into Brighton and, and Clem was very sad and I had to sort of virtually uh, nurture her through through that process because she was very upset about it. And then, then Paris came along and then I had to virtually pick her up and say, mm-hmm. you've got an opportunity to create now and to show the world what you can do. Um, and this has all been from from here I've not left and so that has shown me that actually I probably have good communication skills and I have the ability to um, 
put across what I want to say um, succinctly enough that people trust me and, and things like that, which is probably why we're talking on this on this podcast. Um, and so that's all important. And they're life lessons. If anything mm. that your listeners are, uh, are so watching this is that after 10 years or 11 years of running my own business and then the bit before, which was me learning as a creative, was probably 20 years. I'm probably now mastering um, what I'm meant to be doing. Um, I can get very frustrated with myself because I'm trapped in these four walls. But the last two, three months has taught me that actually the skills that I have are within me and I use this technology to, to, to get it out there and, and to do it. And so that's what I'm learning now is can I make the company as big as I want it to be from the confines of a, of a lockdown jail cell? <laughs> um, Absolutely. We will see, I guess. We will see. Well, if there was anyone that was going to, uh, yeah, if I was ever going to, I was about to say open a newspaper then and see a face. If I was ever going to scroll through social and, and find out that someone's won, won a prize for some kind of communications and creative uh, innovation, it would be you, Mark. And I think that's, uh, that's why every time that we talk and you know, you've been such an inspiration for, throughout my whole career and you know, just your ability to be honest and, and, and give away lots and lots of value without asking for anything back, I think is what makes me really want to you know, find a project to work together on and actually you know, work with you because I think you're a bloody good human being. So just lastly, Mark, um, yeah. you know, we always talk about sort of books and uh, inspirations that, that, you know, that, that we find. What are you reading at the moment or, or what could you possibly suggest to uh, my audience, mostly creative? Uh, my mum and dad also watch this, but they don't read. So, you know, just my, my creative audience. Got any suggestions? Yeah, so um, I'm dyslexic, like, like yourself. So I've, I, I can read, but I, do, I, can, I can only do about 10 pages and I think my eyes just start to struggle and stuff like that. So I listen to um, a lot of um, audio books on Audible. Um, and a few I've picked up from your um, your uh, your podcasts, um, and so ones that you need to if you had a, let's do three, and you can help me with this one. So, did you know the YouTube um, tuber one that was that uh, Streampunks. Streampunks, definitely audio that one or read Streampunks because that basically shows you where YouTube was, where it came to, and where it's going, and what great people who use video and understand community and get that two-way dialogue going, but through video and YouTube are doing. I learned so much from that book and I thought I knew like the platform and stuff like that, but I don't use YouTube enough and that's now becoming my friend. And I did some paid placements on YouTube and history of video games and skank have like skyrocketed out a uh, hundred thousands of views um, and, and genuine views. You can see that people are watching the whole video. But you just need to know how to um, one how to edit the video, and then one how to get it to the community. And and and, and streampunks help me do that. Amazing. Um, the second one is I'm just looking at it here because I've got my laptop stacked up on some books. <laughs> and so, um, the Gen Z effect, which is by Ooh. Thomas Kupelos uh, and Dan Kelsden. Um, I was listening to the audio book, but the audio book was so good because I'm doing my PhD about Gen Z and immersive music um, industry. And Gen Z, the Gen Z Effect is a brilliant book because of it's, it explains that Generation Z um, is normally a tagline given by the media industry uh, to say what that, demo, uh, um, what that sort of age group is. 
Um, but what their argument is that Gen Z is anybody that uses this new philosophy of what we're doing now, um, of embracing change and then taking it into your into your life and being digital first. And the Gen Z effect is actually Gen Z are doing that all the time and you can learn from them. So we talked about reverse mentoring where uh, traditional mentorship is maybe an older person is teaching a younger person an apprenticeship. But actually reverse mentoring is that young people, because of how they use technology, can teach an older person more so than they can. And so there's been this flip round thing happening. And that's part of the Gen Z effect. And this book uh, outlines all that. And I'm sure you can put some links around this to, Absolutely. to find it. And then the third one, um, again, is what my uh, books are stacked up on, um, is... Um, is a book by Graham Hancock. So it's nothing to do with uh, technology and social media. It's actually Graham Hancock. Um, it's called Before America, I think. And I've followed Graham's work since the mid 90s when I was like a, a student of 15, a teenager. And his books are about like lost civilizations. And it's about our, our hist history as humanity is actually incomplete or wrong he he thinks and he keeps finding things and, and and this is now documented by by people that there was a comet that struck the earth around 12,000 uh, BC and sort of wiped out whatever human population was there which would only be a, a few million people around the world there's a massive um, a meteor strike and it happened um, on the ice sheets and it, and, it, and, it, and it created the flood myths and things like that and so they're now finding things all around the world that actually say that what Graham has been saying for about 25 years is actually true. And he's researching what this civilization could be like and what we could learn from it. Um, and he says that basically humanity at the moment has got a collective amnesia uh, and doesn't understand its past. And by not understanding our past, which you can see with the Black Lives Matter protests, we are in denial of what our past and what our em British Empire empire was built upon and we don't talk about it in our history lessons and stuff and that doesn't make us very good people we don't learn from stuff and so by not understanding our ancient past what mistakes are we making now and that's a book that i'm reading so um uh, and graham on the audio on audible on amazon audible is a great narrator and he narrates his own books he's engaging and uh, it's very interesting so it's scientific very interesting so an eclectic reading list for you there. yeah I, I really like it because um you know as much as you know we want to learn more about social media like you know you can never stop learning about this sort of stuff it changes all the time and you know we're filmmakers so we, we, we naturally are, are are inclined to read them but the the history of people you know like just psychology of people understanding us humans is such a fascinating subject because you know you kind of see it everywhere and you know with the black lives matter movement uh, i find i find myself kind of as a knee-jerk reaction, just supporting it and just saying, yes, uh, you know, because of the fact that slavery existed and, and still exists to some degree today, you instantly want to just kind of support that no matter what the details or, or you know, and yet that's just not always right, you know, and, and I guess my, my biggest, uh, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been shamed in the last few days for, for not attending protests. You know, most of my friends are very liberal people, when they asked me to come and blog about the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, protests, um, and it, it's tough because we're in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm a bit confused because I'm not, I don't really want to, you know, I'm not racist, right? I, I 
how many times does someone have to say they're not racist and then obviously go and prove that they're not by going and marching in a protest during a pandemic? You're allowed to have a choice whether you go or not. I mean, that's part of actually the conversation of um, you shouldn't simply say, well, he didn't go, so therefore he is this, he is bad, he is whatever. It's actually, well, actually, I've got a choice to do uh, how I support things or how I do things. And uh, you only have to look at Michael Jordan. Um, I watched the, uh, the Last Dance documentary on Netflix, and he, as a, as a black basketball player that was probably the, well, the best in the world, um, you know, in the, eight, in the 90s, he was like, are you going to support this, uh, this black Democrat that is, is up against a racist and we need your support? And he's like, I don't want to get involved in politics. And his reasoning is for whatever reasons he had. But then fast forward uh, to the present day, he's like, I'm giving 100 million to, to this situation now and I'm, I'm out there to do what I need to do. And he was a prominent person and he decided to not support that cause back then and now supports it now. That's fine. That's, we, we all have a choice. God, if we didn't have a choice, imagine, imagine the world, Cam. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know, man. This is this is what I'm kind of I'm kind of scared of it because you know, as as much as I I appreciate um, that history is always written by the winners, um, you know, obviously you, you get you know you're getting people wanting to um, you know history is just simmering to the surface now. The true history, knowing well, this, that this is great because this this with, with the statues in Bristol um, that has opened up a conversation now where people are going like. Who's that person I've walked past in bronze for the past 50 years and I've never even looked at the, the, at the description? It's just I go around it in the town mm -hmm. centre or something. And people are now researching and realising that, for example, when the slaves were all freed um, by the British government, um, they weren't freed. Like the owners didn't go free, run free. It was like that's our property and you need to buy our property from us. And what you're going to do with that property is completely up to you, but you need to buy it from us. And there's a great, I can't remember the name of it. There was a documentary on BBC um, about two or three years ago. And they looked into the um, income tax had to be created because it was almost like the biggest bailout in history to free all the slaves. It cost billions of pounds in today's money, which back then there was no, they're only collecting taxes for certain things. So they had to invent the income tax to tax us all individuals so that they could pay off the, the slave owners who were corporations who mm -hmm. said, you can have our property, but you need to buy it. And so they did audits and they came up with their own price for how much everybody was worth. People, how much people were worth. Children to adults to men. And they wrote down a ledger and then they sent the ledger so this was the first time that then the government had to create an administration to handle all these ledgers that were coming in. You know, the entire infrastructure had to be created. So how much are you asking for, Mr. Slave Owner? Oh, like £4,000, which is like £100,000 in today's money or whatever. Okay. And they didn't go and check it. They just said, yeah, we agree with that. Right, pay them the money. So they paid them the money. And then the slaves are like, well, we can't have the slaves yet because got, we've got a still got plantations to pick but we'll phase it out so they invented a word called phasing it out and and to pay for all that they had to create income tax and and then they freed everybody and they didn't give them any lands or assets they just went right you're free now okay do you want to work yeah, yeah we want to work for you so some slaves didn't even want to be freed because they didn't have anything else to go to so it was a complete utter mess mm -hmm. and if you go back to it this was people doing it to people. 
white people doing it to, to Africans, but also there's slave trade across Asia and other people were doing it to each other. It's a huge mess. Um, and the money that, this is the thing that will eventually probably come out if you watch these documentaries, is the money that was paid to free the slaves went to a certain 1% kind of people. And they then invested and created new industries like insurance, they, they created the railroads, they, they invested in oil wells. So then all that wealth that we gave them in a bailout went to all these new industries that then grew and, and, and became these billion pound titans, mm. um, which was funded by, by, by they, they invested in something else that they could exploit us from. So, and inevitably they, they then rehired those slaves on incredibly low and unfavorable terms to just carry on the labor. It yeah, is a fascinating they, uh, documentary called 13th uh, on Netflix at the moment um, about how the American slavery uh, never really went away. Um, and, and this is the thing, Mark. So the, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of statues erected all around the world of people that are, are now known to be not so nice people. My, my question is, is, is what are we going to do about it? You know, do we, do we want to uh, erase that part of history or do we want to say as a community, we don't want that there anymore? I mean, I saw, you know, on Winston Churchill's statue, um, you know, in, in the city that it's, you know, people want it removed. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But like my granddad was racist. Like, I love my granddad, but like some of the words he used to say when I was a boy, I was a bit like, wow, how bad is that? So I don't know, where do we stop? Where does this line get drawn? Um, I think I think the actions in Bristol were create, uh, were kind of correct for the, you know, what those, uh, what that group of people did. And I thought that action was very inspiring because you can see it's rippled across the world. So that's actually started another movement, which is actually people thinking and, and discussing history, which is great because I love history and I love that people are now engaged with their own past. Um, I think if you just sort of, to use a phrase of whitewashing history is the wrong thing. So taking the statue down secretly in the middle of the night and hiding it. Um, and then going, no statue here, don't have to worry about it. I think that's wrong. I think what needs to be looked at is that these statues do represent something and they represent a way of getting into a story. And so perhaps gather them all up, like from all across the country and, and put them in a, a space like the Liverpool Slavery Museum or in a, in a designated space where we maybe say sorry like the like the Holocaust um, uh, Memorial in Berlin, which is like lots of concrete slabs and you walk through it and it represents the millions of Jews that died under Hitler. That's the kind of memorial that needs to be built so that we can have the statues of the people that traded these people and a representation in bronze or some sort of art that represents the millions of slaves that were sold and moved around in this triangulation of selling cotton, arms and human capital and, and show it in a representation through art and say, this is what happened and we, we're disgusted by it. We want you to engage in a conversation and we'll engage you in a conversation and this is a space to do that conversation. I think that's what we need, but we've kind of, everybody's a philanthropist and it's like, where'd you get that money from? Oh, I sold slaves. It's like, that's bad. Oh yeah, but I've just built a college. That's good. You're okay. What? Yeah, it, it's <laughs> like, tough. It's like, it? okay, slow down. 
okay, you gave money to the city and nobody really questioned it back then, but we're in times now where we always question where money comes from mm-hmm. because you have to do that. You know, Russian oligarchs, they're buying up football clubs or whatever, but we asked them where they got their money from and no, you can't buy the football club, Mr. Russian oligarch, because that's, that's blood money <laughs> or you stole it or whatever. We now need to probably have that, engage ourselves in a national conversation, which I think is starting to happen. Sadiq Khan in London doing a great job. He's got in there with that conversation. They're looking at all the statues. And then I think we need to have a national conversation at prime minister level. Is that possible? Oh, Boris. <laughs> Boris. And they need to say, well, I think you need a national memorial or something. I think you need to, need to face up to our past. And, um, and all those that profited from it then need to make a decision whether they, they fund that mm-hmm. um, and before anthropists and all that sort of stuff. Or whether they turn the back and go. And I think then we'll know who, who turns the back of the ones you don't want to be involved in. And those that want to say sorry are saying sorry. And I, it, it, it's a really complex subject. It can't be it's decided so on Twitter. It can't be decided on Facebook. It's, it's a conversation that will take many, many conversations to have. And it will take years to, to figure out. But at least it started. Mm. Because people of Bristol took action and I hope that if the police do prosecute, that the people of Bristol will rally round and crowdfund and make sure that those people are looked after because they were the ones that went to break the chains in the 21st century that were still there. <laughs> we just didn't know that they were there. And mm. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's the power of what we have now in social media and storytelling and understanding is and we now have this global conversation. Mm-hmm. And you can't escape it because we're all locked down and we're all looking at our phones and it's constantly on there. So. This is the problem though, Mark, though, is that like, I feel like the re-education program that we need is, um, is, is, is something that needs to be taught in schools. And on the basis that our schools haven't changed their curriculum for hundreds of years, you're a bit like, Jesus, when are we actually going to get the real story about slavery? When are we really going to find out the truth? And I think the really tough thing is knowing that it was legal. It was perfectly legal to own human beings and get them to work. So, you know, we're not... It's royal decree as well. Like, the royal decree is like, that's where the East India Company had to get the, you know, royal... The royal, they have to pay the taxes all went to the the queen, the king queen. I mean, us peasants should revolt against that. I think the queen needs to come out and say something. She needs to say, like, you know, how do you think they build these massive royal gold? What do you think funds that? It's so bad, isn't it? Like, so sinister. It's like it's it's so we see bits, and it's like actually look at the big picture. It used to be a, the British Empire went and did a lot of bad shit, but lots it's actually the slavery element is a small element of a much bigger atrocity. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I, I think, our generation and Gen Z are the ones that are going to put those right because eventually Boris John, eventually like Trump and Boris are going to die. Just, just time, <laughs> we'll, we'll see them off. Mm. And so they'll both of the generation that's coming up that uh, uh, are more in, maybe we're in a period of enlightenment, um, are more enlightened and we'll, we'll say, not on our watch, we've, we've, we're gonna change things. Um, I don't know, mate, I, I love your optimism, but like, like I feel like a left, right, lefty right now because I, I changed my mind on, on things whenever I see new information but that's presented. Fine, Cameron. That's, that's important to do that because that's actually more of a centrist approach because it's either hard left or hard right and it's actually sensible down the middle, listen to everybody and 
and sensible that. central sensible central does that is that come from that word it sounds like it should have i don't know it's just just like and to go slow and steady you know like i said slow just take your time everyone's like fire this off fire this fight it's like whoa slow down like let's let's what's the end goal let's work towards it it's mm. like a lot of fires going off everywhere so. but do you not see i mean with you know obviously the lost generations and and you're being from up north the you know the globalist agenda is what kind of scares me the most the idea that you know whilst we're all busy fighting the very obvious fight which is that you know police corruption or, or even just um you know black lives matter movement is huge but what about the other things that we don't hear about um you know secret deals um that actually long term put countries in you know terrible position the things that isn't black and white for humans to understand and to go and regurgitate are the things that i personally think we should be talking about that aren't sexy at all you know and then you kind of think well i don't agree with what the current zeitgeist is is thinking is the problem you know i think that we've never been in a better time to deal with the um you know to give more equality to to everyone but i don't necessarily think that the world is equal. And I think that those who are in power and control it are, are much more aware of the fact that you can fight amongst yourselves as much as you want. But the reality is, is that you never actually understand what's really going on. And I think from my point of view, it seems like uh, fruitless if we don't just say, you know, MPs should be working for us and us alone shouldn't have any your interests in these companies. Oh wait, you have to talk to these companies. All right, well then you should have a conversation. Oh wait, suddenly now you're having a conversation with a corporation, you are going into their world. And it's so goddamn confusing. And I would love it if one protest could make us all be nice and fair, but that's not the, the problem I want to address. The problem I want to address, I don't think I've found anyone who really um, has got a good idea for it because by the time you get to the position of power, you're kind of okay with it. <laughs> you're like, all right, cool. I, I've earned the right to be here now. What do you think about that? That's a big question there, Cam. I mean, there's loads in that, but I think what you need is to follow anybody, you need a leader and you need um, a figurehead that's recognized so you can say, well, that's who I want to get behind uh, for that particular movement. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was a very good one for the left. Very, like, where did he right. go? They just like erased him. It was like, well, you know, oh. Well, this is the narrative of the media, isn't it? It's like they all, they all, they squashed him down and they won. And then they, they're like, well, there's no, there's no monetary value in doing that anymore. So the media now move on to the next thing. Didn't even say goodbye. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just sort of went. Um, so I don't, I don't vote for the Labour Party. I'm, I'm green. I'm like Team Caroline Lucas, you know, that sort of thing. But I had massive respect for what he was trying to do. But at the election, he offered absolutely everything. And all Boris was saying was um, build a wall or whatever he was doing, you know, whatever <laughs> phrase. That he, well, you know, he just learned from Trump that you just say one thing repeatedly and that'll get you in power. So, um, and also the media wasn't with Jeremy Corbyn. But the, I think what you're talking about is this globalized agenda, like the Bilderberg group kind of stuff, like this, the, the, the government behind the government. Now, there are obviously so many companies that control the world and there are so many, you know, we've still got the royal family here and that lineage goes back a thousand years and then before that it goes back even further and stuff and the way that the European uh, Europe was put together and the reason, the real reason we fought World War One was because there was the royal, it was basically a battle between royal families and, and, and the, you know, we had to fight for king and country. 
World War II was different. That was about fascism. Um, but it's this huge complex problem. And I guess what you're saying is how does Cam solve that? And it's like, no, don't, it's too hard. It's too hard. Like you literally would keep yourself awake at night because when I was making things like Lost Gen and I was probably, if you went back into my early Facebook posts, it was all about, I got this opinion and this is what I think it is. I realized that none of that really matters because no one's really listening to me ever. Even my friends, even people, my colleagues that are close to me are probably not listening to me or watching what I'm doing. And so you need that big figurehead that comes out and says, we're all going to watch this now. We're all going to learn from this now, which is what Gandhi did really well. It's what, um, what Trump does really well, unfortunately, because he uses Twitter very, very well. He's got 82 million followers, which because of his position of power is, is amplified down a funnel to everybody. And, and we see it on BBC News. He, is, he, he knows what he's doing. You know, the, even when he does stuff that's mistakes, I don't sometimes think they're mistakes. He just knows that they'll report on him. And as long as he's in the news cycle 24-7, he's winning. As soon as Twitter deletes him, that's what the, takes one intern to delete that account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's all it takes to wipe him out. <laughs> mm. um, but isn't that interesting? Because, um, you know, also, you know, with, with the idea of corporations being you know, these soulless uh, entities. Well, they're, they're not, they have faces. And you know what the face of Facebook looks like, you know what the face of Twitter looks like. And I don't know whether this is good communications and marketing from Twitter, but I trust Twitter more than I trust Facebook. And isn't that funny? Like all it took was, a, you know, for the, the Twitter CEO to say a few nice things <laughs> for us to go, oh yeah, Twitter's like the decentralized, like, you know, the place where we want to be. And it's like, no, we're making money. Which it totally isn't, because I think you might have read the Disney, uh, Michael um, Eisner, is it, uh, book? Disney were going to buy Twitter, and Twitter were going to sell for Disney. So, like, they, they're all about the money. Um, but then Disney were like, well, you've got all this sort of problem with porn, you've got this problem with comments that are maybe not with the Disney brand. I don't think we can buy it because Disney wanted a social media company and they couldn't afford Facebook and Twitter was just sort of in their price. So Twitter is just a brand like any, anything else. Um, it, it does its little text message tweets and we read into it what we want and we have an opinion and it gives us a platform to have an opinion with people we'd never meet. So our community can be whatever we want it to be and I can hang out with people on Twitter, uh, who I'd never meet in real life. Um, I'm chatting to uh, Jed McHugh, who does um, Line of Duty at the moment. Uh, call it, yeah, Line of Duty, not Call yeah, of Duty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and did The Bodyguard, and I love all that work. And he's in, I'm engaging in with Skank, and I'm like, you know, obviously that's for business means, but I can do that from my phone on my sofa. I don't have to go to a, a, a networking thing in London or something. So has its benefits, but also what we saw in the early days of the internet was early adopters, tech heads, cyberpunks, hackers using that space. Then you kind of um, teenagers and mum and dad start using it. And then world leaders and politicians and corporations start using it. And then so it loses its innocence and becomes a actual a mirror to what the real world actually is, which is very, very complex. It's not black and white, even in a literal sense. Um, it is very, very complex and people use it for their own agendas. And if you have enough money, as you know, with marketing, when you put, pump money into Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, that's when you get the eyeballs. So if you've got a, if you've got a billion pounds, you can say whatever you want on media 
you don't need a national secret agenda you just need to pay for the ads it's crazy isn't it i think they said that trump spent around 100 million dollars on facebook ads during during his election you think you know how does anyone think that democracy is real these days uh, look, I facebook isn't saying it's never saying that it's uh a newspaper or it's a it's a it's a it's a thing it's a corporate entity that that it's a social network mm. and they, they pay to pay to use it. it's free but if you want to actually use it you have to pay, you back. pay some money i think it was um sasha baron cohen recently uh, said that facebook would have given hitler a facebook ad campaign um you know, if, if if it was at the time so yeah i mean uh, you definitely hit the nail on the head there complexity i think the the word of the week for me is nuance you know, and the idea that nothing is as simple as, as it seems. Um, but look, I think that, you know, my own personal thing is about pretty much the same as you, trying to figure out what can I do, what is my, my, my purpose, and, and how does my story lead me to being the, the right person at the right time? Because that's all it is, right? You know about timing more than anyone. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, yeah, to seeing all of your work coming up in the future, Mark. Listen, mate, there's, uh, there's, there's a, a very few... Uh, words that that could summarize um, you know the, the the amazing relationship we've had just from a you know mentor reverse mentor whatever you want to call it just from an inspiration in a corridor in future works and just giving time to each other yeah absolutely listen what what can uh, you know what can we do what can I do what can my community do to support future artists support your work where can we find you pitch yourself Oh, well, I mean, just jump onto our socials, I guess, and then follow us. And then when something pops up that's relevant, um, engage with the conversation and uh, choose to come to something if, that, if, it, if it floats your boat and you're into it. We're very diverse um, without trying to be trendy or cool or anything. I just I enjoy diversity. So it could be anything from history of video games to um, a, fe a feminist play skank. Um, and then everything else in between. So, um, future artists on Facebook, so Facebook forward slash future artists, Twitter, future artists, um, futureartists.net, which is our website, loads of information on the events that we do there. Um, and you can find me, Mark Ashmore, on LinkedIn, just link into me there and I'll try and answer stuff. So, um, and it's me that that's mainly on all the socials. So you'll be chatting directly to me. And then when it gets busy, we've got other members of the team that you get involved, but pretty easy to find. And, uh, well, that should be like anybody that wants to make a difference in their community. You need to be the one doing the work and, and the one pitching in. So these corporations, who knows that's in charge of their social media, but you're not talking directly with them and stuff. And mm -hmm. that's breaking down now and, you know, well, look, Mark, you've always been uh, the people's champion um, and, you know, now it's uh, becoming the business champion. Um, and in the future, you'll be, you know, regarded as another champion. You're always innovating. You're always leading as the, as long the team. As I can pay the bills, do good work and have something good to eat and hang out with my friends. That is literally all I want to do. You've got to keep, you've got to keep it very zen, you know, so mm. there's no ego in all this sort of stuff. I really genuinely enjoy the act of creation and new ideas and meeting inspiring people and helping them on the journey. And they can also help me, which is, I guess, the relationship we've got, Cam, too. Oh, mate. Well, the world is lucky to have you. Mark Ashmore, thank you so much for coming on to Cam Talks. We will catch up again soon.